Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 65. Angel was dressed in as much red as the devil himself. Bright red shoes, red socks, red leggings, red skirt, red sweater, and a knee-length red coat with a red hood. Sue-woo! She stood just inside the front door of the apartment, admiring herself in a full-length mirror, waiting patiently for Celestina, who was packing dolls, coloring books, tablets, and a large collection of crayons into a zipper satchel. Though she was only a week past her third birthday, Angel always selected her own clothes and carefully dressed herself. Usually, she preferred monochromatic outfits, sometimes with a single accent color expressed only in a belt or a hat or a scarf. When she mixed several colors, the initial impression that she gave was of chromatic chaos. But on second look, you began to see that these unlikely combinations were more harmonious than they at first seemed. For a while, Celestina had worried that the girl was slower to walk than other children, slower to talk, and slower to develop her vocabulary, even though Celestina read aloud to her from storybooks every day. Then, during the past six months, Angela caught up in a rush though she traveled a road somewhat different from what the child-rearing books described. Her first word was mama, which was fairly standard, but her second was blue, which for a while came out boo. At three, an average child would be doing exceptionally well to identify four colors. Angel could name 11, including black and white, because she was able routinely to differentiate pink from red and purple from blue. Wally... Dr. Walter Lipscomb, who delivered Angel and who became her godfather, never worried when the girl seemed to be developing too slowly, counseling that every child was an individual, with his or her own particular learning pace. Wally's double specialty, obstetrics and pediatrics, gave him credibility, of course, but Celestina had worried anyway. Worrying is what mothers do best. Trust me, fathers do it too. We're pretty good at it. (laughs) <laughs> I still tell my kids text me when you get home and I sit up until I see that message 
Like, don't just limit that one to women. Like, I realize that it's passe to say, you know, moms worry and dads are like, they don't care about anything. But no, if it's your child, you worry. That's still a piece of my heart. I don't know. And that's not what mothers do best. What mothers do best is leadership and caring and nurturing and just insight, like boundless insight. I mean, dads, we do some of those things. I mean, I think I nurture and care and I offer insight out the wazoo. Y'all know me. But sometimes I just need time by myself and I don't know if that's because of who I am, but... I mean, my wife needs time by herself, too. But, I mean, when they were little, we didn't want time by ourselves. We wanted time with them. And so we coached and we did cheerleading. We did everything with them. As they got older and they started wanting time by themselves, we started appreciating the time we had to ourselves. Yeah. Celestina was her mother, as far as Angel was concerned. And the child was not yet of an age to be told and to understand that she had been blessed with two mothers. The one who gave birth to her and the one who raised her. Recently, Wally administered to Angel a set of apperception tests for three-year-olds, and the results indicated that she might not ever be a math whiz or a verbal gymnast, but that she might be highly talented in other ways. Her appreciation of color, her innate understanding of the derivation of secondary hues from the primary colors, her sense of spatial relationships, and her recognition of basic geometric forms, regardless of the angle at which they are presented, were all far beyond what was exhibited by other kids her age. Wally said she was visually, rather than verbally, gifted. That she would undoubtedly exhibit increasing precociousness in matters artistic. That she might follow Celestina's career path. And that she might even prove to be a prodigy. Red Riding Hood, Angela announced, studying herself in the mirror. Celestina finally zipped shut the satchel. You better watch out for the big bad wolf. Not me. Wolf better watch out, Angel declared. You think you could kick some wolf butt, huh? Bam, Angel said, watching her reflection as she booted an imaginary wolf. Retrieving a coat from the closet, shrugging into it, Celestina said, You should have wore green, Miss Hood. Then the wolf would never recognize you. Don't feel like a frog today. You don't look like one either. You're pretty, Mommy. Why, thank you very much, Sugar Pie. Am I pretty? It's not polite to ask for a compliment. But am I? You're gorgeous. Sometimes, I'm not sure, said Angel, frowning at herself in the mirror. Trust me, you're a knockout. Celestina dropped one knee in front of Angel to tie the drawstrings of the hood under the girl's shin. Mommy? Why are dogs furry? Where do dogs come from? I wonder about that too. No, Celestina said. I mean, why are we talking about dogs all of a sudden? Because they're like wolves. Oh, right. Well, God made them furry. Why didn't God make me furry? Because he didn't want you to be a dog. She finished tying a ball on the drawstrings. There, you look just like an M&M. That's candy. Well, you're sweet, aren't you? And you're all bright red on the outside and milk chocolate inside, Celestina said, gently tweaking the girl's light brown nose. I'd rather be a Mr. Goodbar. Then you'd have to wear yellow. 
In the hall that served the two ground floor apartments, they encountered Rena Muller, the elderly woman who lived in the unit across from theirs. She was polishing the dark wood of her front door with lemon oil, a sure sign that her son and his family were coming to dinner. I'm an M&M, Angel proudly told their neighbor as Celestina locked the door. Rena was cheerful, short, and solid. Her waist measurement must have been two-thirds her height, and she favored floral dresses to emphasize her girth. With a German accent that I'm not going to do, and in a voice that always seemed about to dissolve with a great gale of mirth, she said, Mocked and leave. See, I, I, I can't do it. I tried. I tried. Um, to be honest with you, the only German I've ever heard on anything, movies, shows, life, was either them counting to three. No, that wasn't even German. That was Swiss and Cool Runnings. Uh, Hitler in uh, Inglorious Bastards. Um, and then the white girl uh, from Scrubs. And I don't remember anything that any of them said. So I'm not going to try. But she said, Machkin Lieb, you look like a Christmas candle to me. Candles melt. I don't want to melt. M&M's melt too, Rena warned. Do wolves like candy? Maybe. I don't know from wolves, Lieblin. Angel said, you look like a flower garden, Miss Muller. I do, don't I? Rena agreed, as with one plump hand, she spread the pleated skirt of her brightly patterned dress. A big garden. Angel! Celestina gasped, mortified. I mean, kids are like that, though. Like, my son came up to me and was like, when are you having another baby, Dad? And I was like, well, me and your mom, you know, we talked about it and we might have one somewhere down the line. And he was like, no. And he patted my stomach and he was like, when are you having this baby? And that's when I was like, you really haven't passed tenure yet. You're only like three. I can make another one that looks just like you. Give him the same name. Nobody will even ask questions. They'd just be like, DJ, too? I'd be like, yep. Rena laughed. Oh, but true. And not just a garden. I'm a field of flowers. She let go of her skirt, which shimmered like cascades of falling petals. So tonight will be a famous night, Celestina. Wish me luck, Rena. Big success. Total sellout, I predict. I'll be relieved if we sell one painting. All. Good as you are, not one left. I know. From your lips to God's ear. It wouldn't be the first time, Rena assured her. Outside, Celestina took Angel's hand as they descended the front steps to the street. Their apartment was in a four-story Victorian house that dripped gingerbread in the exclusive Pacific Heights district. It had been converted to apartments with deep respect for the architecture years before Wally bought it. Wally's own house was in the same neighborhood, a block and a half away, a three-story Victorian gym that he entirely occupied. Twilight nearly gone and purple in the west, inspired a bright violet line along the crest of an incoming bank of bay fog, as though the mist were shot through with a luminous vein of neon, transforming the entire sparkling city into a stylish cabaret now opening for business. The night, soft as a woman come to dance, carried a steely blade of cold in its black silk skirts. Celestina checked her wristwatch and saw that she was running late. With Angel's short legs and layers of red, there was no point in trying to hurry. Where does the blue go? The girl asked. What blue, sugar pie? The blue sky. It follows the sun. Where's the sun go? 
Hawaii. Why Hawaii? It owns a house there. Why there? Real estate's cheaper. I mean, Hawaii, San Francisco. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Okay, perhaps. It doesn't matter. Y'all need to stay out of Hawaii. Alright? So check it out. Let me tell you what Hawaii looks like so y'all don't ever have to visit there and mess up what these uh, locals are going through. Y'all, Hawaii ain't nothing but block after block of like stores like 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 convenience stores like there's an abc store on every single corner in hawaii and it's packed to the gills it's an island it's a little island it's like even the big island is a little island and there's not a lot of food they have to ship it in they have to fly it in they have to get it how they live and we keep on flying out there like oh i'm gonna go visit hawaii and live my best life on the beach and all that like y'all can't do that in california but y'all go there and y'all eat their food and y'all raise their price and y'all mess up their ecosystem and then y'all just dip out. Stay out of Hawaii. Aloha. I'm not buying this. Would I lie? No. But you tease. They arrived at the first corner and crossed the intersection. Their exhalations plumed frostily. Breathing ghosts, Angel called it. You behave yourself tonight, Celestina said. Am I staying with Uncle Wally? With Miss Ornwall. Why does she stay with Uncle Wally? You know that. She's his housekeeper. Why don't you live with Uncle Wally? I'm not his housekeeper, am I? Isn't Uncle Wally home tonight? Only for a little while. Then he's joining me at the gallery, and after the show's over, we're having dinner together. Will you eat cheese? We might. Will you eat chicken? Why do you care what we eat? I'm going to eat some cheese. I'm sure Miss Ornwall will make you a grilled cheese sandwich if you want. Look at our shadows. They're in front, then they go behind. Because we keep passing the street lamps. They must be dirty, huh? The street lamps? Our shadows. They're always on the ground. I'm sure they're filthy. So then, where does the black go? What black? The black sky in the morning. Where does it go, Mommy? I don't have a clue. I thought you knew everything. I used to. Celestina sighed. My brain's not working well right now. Go eat some cheese. Are we back to that? It's brain food. Cheese? Says who? The cheese man on TV. You can't believe everything you see on TV, sugar pie. Captain Kangaroo doesn't lie. No, he doesn't. But Captain Kangaroo isn't the cheese man. Wally's house is a half a block away. He was standing on the sidewalk, talking to a taxi driver. Her cab had already arrived. Let's hurry, sugar pie. Do they know each other? Uncle Wally and the cab driver? No, I, I don't think so. No. Captain Kangaroo and the cheese man. They probably do. Then the captain should tell him not to lie. I'm sure he will. What is brain food? Fish, maybe. You remember to say your prayers tonight. I always do. Remember to ask that God bless for me and Uncle Wally and Grandma and Grandpa. I'm going to pray for the cheese man, too. That's a good idea. Will you eat some bread? I'm sure we will. Put some fish on it. Grinning, Wally held his arms out and Angel ran to him. And he scooped her up from the sidewalk. He said... 
You look like a chili pepper. The cheese man is a rotten liar, she announced. Handing the satchel to Wally, Celestina said, dolls, crayons, and her toothbrush. To Angel, the taxi driver said, why, you sure are a lovely young lady, aren't you? God didn't want me to be a dog, Angel told him. Is that so? He didn't make me furry. Give me a kiss, sugar pie, Celestina said, and her daughter planted a wet smooch on her cheek. What are you going to dream about? You, said Angel, who occasionally had nightmares. What kind of dreams are they going to be? Only good ones. What happens if the stupid boogeyman dares to show up in your dream? You'll kick his hairy butt, Angel said. That's right. Better hurry, Wally advised, gracing Celestina's other cheek with a drier kiss. The reception was from 6 o'clock to 8.30. If she were to arrive on time, guardian angels would have to be perched on all the traffic lights along the way. In the cab, pulling into traffic, the driver said, The mister tells me you're the star of the show tonight. Celestina turned in her seat to look back at Wally and Angel, who were waving. I guess I am. Did they say break a leg in the art world? I don't see why not. Then break a leg. Thank you. The cab turned the corner. Wally and Angel were lost to sight. Facing forward again, Celestina suddenly laughed with delight. Glancing at her in the rearview mirror, the driver said, Pretty exhilarating, huh? Your first big show? I guess so, but it's not that. I was thinking of something my little girl said. Celestina succumbed to a fit of giggles. Before she could control them, she used up two Kleenex to blow her nose and blot the laughter from her eyes. She seems like a pretty special kid, the driver said. I sure think so. I think she's everything. I tell her she's the moon and stars. I'm probably spoiling her rotten. Nah. Loving them isn't the same as spoiling them. Dear Lord, how she loved her sugar pie, her little M&M. Three years have passed in what seemed like a month. And although there have been stress and struggle, too few hours in every day, less time for her art than she would have liked, and little or no time for herself... She wouldn't have traded being blindsided by motherhood for any amount of wealth. Not for anything in the world. Except to have Femi back. Angel was the moon, the sun, the stars, and all the comets streaking through infinite galaxies and ever-shining light. Wally's help, not just with the apartment, but with his time and love, had made an incalculable difference. Celestina often thought of his wife and twin boys. Rowena, Danny, and Harry, dead in that airliner crash six years ago, and sometimes she was pierced by a sense of loss so poignant that they might have been members of her own family. She grieved as much over their loss of Wally as over his loss of them, and as blasphemous as the thought might be, she wondered why God had been so cruel as to sunder such a family. Rowena, Danny, and Harry had crossed all waters of suffering and lived now eternally in the kingdom. One day, they would all be rejoined with the special husband and father they had lost, but even the reward of heaven seemed inadequate compensation for being denied so many years here on earth with a man as good and kind and as big of heart as Walter Lipscomb. He wanted to give Celestina more help than she would accept. She continued working nights as a waitress for two years, while she completed classes at the Academy of Art College, and she quit her job only when she began selling her paintings for enough to equal her wages and gratuities. Initially, Helen Greenbaum at Greenbaum Gallery had taken on three canvases, and had sold them within a month. She took four more, then another three when two of the four moved quickly. 
By the time she had placed 10 pieces with collectors, Helen decided to include Celestina in a show of six new artists. And now, already, she had a show of her own. Her first year at college, she had hoped only to be able one day to earn a living as an illustrator for magazines or on the staff of an advertising agency. A career in the fine arts, of course, was every painter's fantasy, the full freedom to explore her talent. But she would have been grateful for the realization of a much humbler dream. Now, she was just 23, and the world hung before her like a ripe plum, and she seemed able to reach high enough to pluck it off the branch. Sometimes Celestina marveled at how intimately and inextricably the tendrils of tragedy and joy were intertwined in the vine of life. Sorrow was often the root of future joy, and joy could be the seed of sorrow yet to come. The layer patterns in the vine were so complex, so enrapturing in their lush detail, and so fearsome in their wild inevitability, that she could fill uncountable canvases, through many lifetimes as an artist, striving to capture the enigmatic nature of existence, in all its beauty, dark and bright, and in the end, merely suggest the palest shadow of its mystery. And the irony of ironies, with their talent deepening to a degree that she had never dared hope it would, with collectors responding to her vision to an extent that she never imagined possible, with her goals already exceeded, and with great vistas of possibility opening before her, she would throw it all away with some regret, but with no bitterness, if required to choose between art and angel, for the child had proved to be the greater blessing. Femi was gone. But Feeney's spirit fed and watered her sister's life, bringing forth a great abundance. Here we are, said the driver, breaking to a stop at the curb in front of the gallery. Her hand shook as she counted out the fare and the tip from her wallet. I'm scared sick. Maybe you should just take me right back home. Turning around in his seat, watching with amusement as Celestina fumbled nervously with the currency, the cabbie said, You're not scared. Not you. Sitting back there so silent most of the way, you weren't thinking about being famous. You were thinking about that girl of yours. Pretty much. I know you, kid. You can handle anything from here on, whether it's a sold-out show or it's not. Whether you're going to be famous or just another nobody. You must be thinking of someone else, she said, pushing a wad of bills into his hand. Me? I'm a jellyfish in high heels. The driver shook his head. I knew everything anyone would need to know about you when I heard you ask your kid what would happen if the stupid boogeyman showed up in her dream. She's had this nightmare lately. And even in her dreams, you're determined to be there for her. If there was a boogeyman, I have no doubt you would kick his hairy ass and he wouldn't come around again, ever. So you just go in this gallery, impress the hell out of the hoity-toity types, take their money, and get famous. Perhaps because Celestina was her father's daughter, with his faith in humanity, she was always deeply moved by the kindness of the strangers and saw in them the shape of a greater grace. Does your wife know what a lucky woman she is? If I had a wife, she wouldn't feel too lucky. I'm not of the persuasion that wants a wife, dear. So is there a man in your life? Same one for 18 years. 18 years, then he must know how lucky he is. I make sure to tell him at least twice a day. She got out of the cab and stood on the sidewalk in front of the gallery, her legs as shaky as those of a newborn colt. The announcement poster seemed enormous, huge, far bigger than she remembered it, crazily, recklessly large. 
by its very size, it challenged critics to be cruel, dared the fates to celebrate her triumph by shaking the city to ruin right now in the quake of the century. She wished Helen Greenbaum had opted instead for a few lines of type on an index card taped to the glass. At the sight of her photograph, she felt herself flush. She hoped none of the pedestrians passing between her and the gallery would look from the photo to her face and recognize her. What had she been thinking? The sequin and tasseled hat of fame was too gaudy for her. She was a minister's daughter from Spruce Hills, Oregon, more comfortable in a baseball cap. Two of her largest and best paintings were in the show windows, dramatically lighted. They were dazzling. They were dreadful. They were beautiful. They were hideous. The show was hopeless, disastrous, stupid, foolish, painful, lovely, wonderful, glorious, and sweet. It could only be made better by the presence of her parents. They had planned to fly down to San Francisco this morning, but late yesterday, a parishioner and close friend had died. A minister and his wife sometimes had duties to the flock that superseded all else. She read aloud the name of the exhibition, This Momentous Day. She took a deep breath. She lifted her head, straightened her shoulders, and went inside, where a new life waited for her. Chapter 66 Junior Cain wandered amongst the Philistines in the gray land of conformity, seeking one, just one, refreshingly repellent canvas finding only images that welcomed and even charmed, yearning for real art and the vicious emotional whirlpool of despair and disgust that it evoked, finding instead only themes of uplift and images of hope, surrounded by people who seemed to like everything from the paintings to the canapes to the cold January night. People who probably hadn't spent even one day of their life brooding about the inevitability of nuclear annihilation before the end of this decade. People who smiled too much to be genuine intellectuals, and he felt more alone and threatened than eyeless Samson chained in Gaza. He hadn't intended to enter the gallery. No one in his usual circles would attend this show, unless in such a state of chemically altered consciousness that they wouldn't be able to recall the event in the morning. So he wasn't likely to be recognized or remembered. Yet it seemed unwise to risk being identified as a reception attendee as Celestina White's Little Bartholomew and maybe the artist herself were murdered later. The police, in their customary paranoia, might suspect the link between this affair and the killings, which would motivate them to seek out and question every guest. Besides, he wasn't on the Greenbaum Gallery customer list and didn't have an invitation. At those cutting-edge galleries where he attended receptions, no one got in without a printed invitation. And even with the authentic paper in hand, you might still be refused entry if you failed to pass the cool test. The criteria of cool were the same as at the current hottest dance clubs. And in fact, the bouncers controlling the gate at the finest avant-garde galleries were those who worked the clubs. Junior had walked along the big show window, studying the two white paintings displayed to passerbys, appalled by their beauty, when suddenly the door had opened and a gallery employee had invited him to come in. No printed invitation needed, no cool test to pass, no bouncers keeping the gate. Such easy accessibility served as proof, if you needed it, that this was not real art. Caution discarded, Junior went inside, for the same reason that a dedicated opera estate might once a decade attend a country music concert, to confirm the superiority of his taste and to be amused by what passed for music amongst the great unwashed. Some might call it slumming.
Celestina White was the center of attention, always surrounded by champagne-swilling, canopy-gobbling bourgeois who would have been shopping for paintings on velvet if they had less money. To be fair, with her exceptional beauty, she would have been the center of attention even at a gathering of real artists. Junior had little chance of getting a Seraphim's bastard boy without going through this woman and killing her as well. But if his luck held and he could eliminate Bartholomew without Celestina realizing who had done the deed, then he might yet have a chance to discover if she was as lubricious as her sister and if she was his heartmate. Once he had toured the exhibition, managing not to shut her openly, he tried to hang out within hearing distance of Celestina White, but without appearing to be listening with special intensity. He heard her explain that the title of the exhibition had been inspired by one of her father's sermons, which aired on a nationally syndicated weekly radio program more than three years ago. This wasn't a religious program, per se, but rather one concerned with the search for meaning in life. It usually broadcast interviews with contemporary philosophers as well as speeches by them, but from time to time featured a clergyman. Her father's sermon received the greatest response from listeners of anything aired on the program in 20 years. And three weeks later, it was rerun by popular demand. Recalling how the title of the exhibition resonated with him when first he had seen the gallery brochure, Junior felt certain now that the tape recorder early drafted this sermon was the kinky music that accompanied his evening of passion with Seraphim. He couldn't remember one word of it, let alone any element that would have deeply moved the national radio audience. But this didn't mean that he was shallow or incapable of being touched by philosophical speculations. He had been so distracted by the erotic perfection of Seraphim's young body and so busy jumping her that he wouldn't have remembered a word either if Zed himself had been sitting on the bed discussing the human condition with his customary brilliance. Most likely, Reverend White's ramblings were as greasy with sentiment and oily with the rational optimism as were his daughter's paintings. So Junior was in no hurry to learn the name of the radio program or to write for a transcript of the sermon. He was about to go in search of the canapes when he half heard one of the guests mention Bartholomew to the Reverend's daughter. Only the name rang on his ear, not the words that surrounded it. Oh, Celestina White replied, yes, every day. I'm currently engaged on an entire series of works inspired by Bartholomew. These would no doubt be cloyingly sentimental paintings of a bastard boy, with impossibly large and limpid eyes, posed cutely with puppies and kittens, pictures better suited for cheap calendars and for gallery walls, and dangerous to the health of diabetics. Nevertheless, Dream was thrilled to hear the name Bartholomew, and to know that the boy whom Celestina spoke was a Bartholomew of Bartholomew's. The menacing presence in his unremembered dream, the threat to his fortune and future that must be eliminated. As he edged closer to better hear the conversation, he became aware of someone staring at him. He looked up into anthracite eyes, into a gaze as sharp as that as any bird, set in the lean face of a 30-something man thinner than a winter-starved crow. Fifteen feet separated them, with guests intervening. Yet this stranger's attention could have been felt no more disturbingly intense to Junior if they had been alone in the room and but a foot apart. More alarming still, he suddenly realized this was no stranger. The face looked familiar, and he sensed that he had seen it before from a disquieting context, though the man's identity eluded him. 
With a nervous twitch of his avian head and a wary frown, the watcher broke eye contact and slipped into the chattering crowd, lost as quickly as a slender sandpiper skittering amongst a herd of plump seagulls. Just as the man turned away, Junior got a glimpse of what he wore under a London fog raincoat. Between the lapels of the coat, a white shirt with a wing collar, a black bow tie, the suggestion of black satin lapels like those on a tuxedo jacket. A tune clinked off the keys of a phantom piano on Junior's mind. Someone to watch over me. The hawkeye watcher was a pianist in the elegant hotel lounge where Junior had enjoyed dinner on his first night in San Francisco, and twice since. Clearly, the musician recognized him, which seemed unlikely, even extraordinary, considering that they had never spoken to each other. And considering that Junior must be only one of thousands of customers who have passed through that lounge in the past three years. Otter yet... The pianist had studied him with a keen interest that was inexplicable, since they were essentially strangers. When caught staring, he had appeared rattled, turning away quickly, eager to avoid further contact. Junior had hoped not to be recognized by anyone at this affair. He regretted that he hadn't stuck to his original plan, maintaining surveillance of the gallery from his parked car. The musician's behavior required explanation. After winding through a crowd, Junior located the man in front of a painting so egregiously beautiful that any connoisseur of real art could hardly resist the urge to slash the canvas of ribbons. I've enjoyed your music, Junior said. Startled, the pianist turned to face him and backed off a step as though his personal space had been too deeply invaded. Oh, well, thank you. That That's kind. I love my work, you know. It's so much fun. It hardly qualifies as work at all. I've been playing the piano since I was six, and I was never one of those children who whined about having to take lessons. I simply couldn't get enough. Either this chatterbox was at all times a babbling airhead, or Junior particularly disconcerted him. What do you think of the exhibition, Junior asked, taking one step towards the musician, crowding him. Striving to appear casual, but obviously unnerved, the pencil-thin man backed off again. The paintings are lovely, wonderful. I'm enormously impressed. I'm a friend of the artist, you know. She was a tenant of mine. I was her landlord during the early college years in her salad days. A nice little studio apartment before the baby. A lovely girl. I always knew she'd be a success. It, it, it was so apparent even in her earliest work. I just had to come tonight even though a friend's covering two of my four sets. I, I, I couldn't miss this. Bad news. Having been identified by another guest put Junior at risk of later being tied to the killing. Having been recognized by a close personal friend of Celestino White's was even worse. It had become imperative now that he know why the pianist had been watching him from across the room with such intensity. Once more crowding his quarry, Junior said, I'm amazed you'd recognize me since I haven't been to the lounge often. The musician had no talent for deception. His hopping hen eyes pecked at the nearest painting, at other guests, down at the floor, everywhere but directly at Junior, and a nerve twitched in his left cheek. Well, I'm very good, you know, at faces. They stick with me. I don't know why. Goodness knows my memory's otherwise shot. Extending his hand, watching the pianist closely, Junior said, My name's Richard Gaminer. The musician's eyes met Junior's for an instant, widening with surprise. Obviously, he knew the gambiner was a lie, so he must be aware of Junior's real identity. Junior said, I should know your name from the playbill at the lounge, but I'm as bad with names as you are good with faces. 
Hesitantly, the ivory tickler shook hands. I'm, um, I'm Ned Nathic. Everybody calls me Nettie. Nettie favored a quick greeting, two curt pumps, but Junior held fast after the handshake was over. He didn't grind the musician's knuckles, nothing so crude, just held on pleasantly but firmly. His intention was to confuse and further rattle the man, taking advantage of his obvious dislike of having his personal space encroach upon, in the hope that Nettie would reveal why he had been watching Junior so intently from across the room. I've always wanted to learn the piano myself, Junior claimed, but I guess you really have to start young. Oh, no, it's never too late. Visibly nonplussed by Junior's blithe failure to terminate the handshake when the shaking stopped, the fussy Nettie didn't want to be so rude as to yank his hand loose, or to cause a scene regardless of how small. But Junior, smiling and pretending to be as socially dense as concrete, failed to respond to a polite tug. So Nettie waited, allowing his hand to be held, and his face, previously as white as piano keys, brightened to a shade of pink that clashed with his red boutonniere. Do you give lessons? Junior inquired. Me? Oh, well, no. Not, not really. Money's no object. I can afford whatever you like to charge, and I'd be a diligent student. I'm sure you would be, yes, but I'm afraid I don't have the patience to teach. I'm a performer, not an instructor. I suppose I can give you the name of a good teacher. Although Nettie had flushed to a rich primrose pink, Junior still held his hand, crowding him, lowering his face even closer to the musicians. If you vouched for a teacher, I, I'd feel confident that I was in good hands, but I'd still much rather learn from you, Nettie. I really wish you would reconsider. His patience exhausted. The pianist wrenched his hand out of Junior's grip. He glanced around nervously, certain that they must be the center of attention, but of course the reception guests were lost in their witless conversations, or they were gaga over the modeling paintings, and no one was aware of this quiet little drama. Glaring in red face, lowering his voice almost to a whisper, Nettie said, I'm sorry, but you've got me all wrong. I'm not like Renee and you. For a moment, Junior drew a blank on Renee. Reluctantly, he trolled the past and fished up the painful memory. The gorgeous trans woman in the Chanel suit. Heir or heiress to an industrial valve fortune. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, you understand. Nettie whispered with a fierce sort of conciliation. But I'm not gay, and I'm not interested in teaching you the piano or anything else. Besides, after the stories Renee told about you, I, I can't imagine why you think any friend of his, her, hers, hers, would get near you. You need help. Renee is what she is, but she's not a bad person. She's generous and she's sweet. She doesn't deserve to be beaten and abused and, and all those horrible things you did. Ex excuse me. In a swirl of London fog and righteous indignation, Nettie turned his back on Junior and drifted away through the nibbling, nattering crowd. As though the blush was transmitted by a virus, Junior caught the primrose pink contagion from the pianist. Since Renee Vivi lived in the hotel, she probably considered the cocktail lounge to be a personal pickup spot. Naturally, people who worked the lounge knew her, were friendly with her. They'll remember any man who accompanied the Harris to her penthouse. Worse, the vengeful and vicious bitch, or bastard, whatever, evidently had made up vile stories about him, which on a slow evening she shared with Nettie, with the bartender, with anyone who would listen. The staff at the lounge believed Junior was a dangerous sadist. 
No doubt she had concocted other lurid stories as well, charging him with everything from a degenerate interest in bodily waste to the self-mutilation of his genitalia. Wonderful. Oh, perfect. So Nettie, a friend of Celestina's, knew the junior, reputed to be a vicious sadist, had attended this reception under a false name. If Junior really was a sleazy pervert of such Rococo taste that he would be shunned even by the scum of the world, even by the deranged mutant offspring of a self-breeding hermaphrodite, then surely he was capable of murder too. On hearing of Bartholomew and or Celestina's death, Nettie would be on the phone to the police, pointing them towards Junior in 12 seconds, maybe 14. Unobtrusively, Junior followed the musician across a large front room, but by indirect arc, using the babbling bourgeois for cover. Nettie cooperated by not deigning to look back. Eventually, he stopped a young man who, judging by the name tag on the lapel of his blazer, was a gallery employee. They put their heads together in conversation, and then the musician headed through an archway into the second showroom. Curious to know what Nettie had said, Junior quickly approached the same gallery staffer. Excuse me, but I've been looking for my friend ever so long in this mob, and I saw him talking to you, the gentleman in the London fog and the tux, and now I've lost him again. He didn't say if he was leaving, did he? He's my ride home. The young man raised his voice to be heard above the gobbling of the art turkeys. No, sir. He just asked where the men's room was. And where is it? At the back of the second gallery, on the left, there's a corridor. The restrooms are at the end of it, beyond the offices. By the time Junior passed the three offices and found the men's room, Nettie had occupied it. The door was locked, which must mean this is a single occupant, John. Junior leaned against the door casing. The hall was deserted. Then a woman came out of one of the offices and walked towards the gallery without glancing at him. The 9mm pistol rested in a complimentary shoulder holster under Junior's leather coat. But the sound suppressor hadn't been attached. It was in one of his coat pockets. The extended barrel, too large to lay comfortably against his left side, would have most likely hung up on the holster when drawn. He didn't want to risk marrying a weapon and silencer here in the hall where he might be seen. Besides, complications could arrive from being splattered with Nettie's blood. Aftermath was disgusting, but it was also highly incriminating. For the same reason, he was loath to use a knife. A toilet flushed. For the past two days, Junior had only eaten binding foods, and late this afternoon, he had taken a preventive dose of paragoric as well. Through the door came the sound of running water splashing in a sink. Nettie washing his hands. The hinges weren't on the outside. The door would open inward. The water shut off, and Junior heard the ratcheting noise of a paper towel dispenser. No one in the hall. Timing was everything. Junior no longer leaned casually on the casing. He put both hands flat against the door. When he heard the snick of the lock being disengaged, he ran into the men's room. In a rustle of raincoat, Nettie Nathick stumbled off balance and startled. Before the pianist could cry out, Junior drove him between the toilet and the sink, slamming him against the wall hard enough to knock loose his breath and to cause the water to slosh audibly in the nearby toilet tank. Behind them, the door rebounded forcefully from a rubber-tipped stopper and then closed with a thud. The lock wasn't engaged, however, and they might be interrupted momentarily. Nettie possessed all the musical talent, but Junior had the muscle. 
Pinned against the wall, his throat in the vise of Junior's hands, Nettie needed a miracle if he was ever again to sweep another glissando from a keyboard. Up flew his hands, as white as doves, flapping as though trying to escape from the sleeves of his raincoat, as if he were a magician rather than a musician. Maintaining a brutal strangling pressure, Junior turned his head aside to protect his eyes. He kneed Nettie in the crotch, crunching the remaining fight out of him. The dying dove hands fluttered down Junior's arms, plucking feebly at his leather coat, and at last hung limp in Nettie's sides. The musician's bird-sharp gaze grew dull. His pink tongue protruded from his mouth like a half-eaten worm. Junior released Nettie and, letting him slide down the wall to the floor, returned to the door to lock it. Reaching for the latch, he suddenly expected the door to fly open, revealing Thomas Vanadium dead and risen. The ghost didn't appear, but Junior was shaken by the mere thought of such a supernatural confrontation in the middle of this crisis. From the door to the sink, nervously fishing a plastic pharmacy bottle out of a coat pocket, Junior counseled himself to remain calm. Slow, deep breaths. What's done is done. Live in the future. Act. Don't react. Focus. Look for the bright side. As yet, he hadn't taken either antimetic or antihistamine to ward off vomiting in hives. Because he wanted to medicate against those conditions as shortly before the violence as was practical to ensure maximum protection. He intended to dose himself only after he followed Celestina home from the gallery and could be reasonably certain that he had located the lair of Bartholomew. He shook so badly that he couldn't remove the cap from the bottle. He was proud to be more sensitive than most people, to be so full of feeling, but sometimes sensitivity was a curse. Off with the cap. Yellow capsules in the bottle, also blue. He managed to shake one of each color into the palm of his left hand without spilling the rest on the floor. The end of his quest was near, so near, the right Bartholomew almost within bullet range. He was furious with Nettie Nathic for possibly screwing this up. He capped the bottle, pocketed it, and then kicked the dead man, kicked him again, and spat on him. Slow, deep breaths. Focus. Maybe the bright side was that the musician hadn't either wet his pants or taken a dump while in his death throes. Sometimes, during a comparatively slow death like strangulation, the victim lost control of all bodily functions. He had read it in a novel, something from the book at a month club and therefore both life-enriching and reliable. Probably not a Dora Welty, maybe Norman Mailer. Anyway, the men's room didn't smell as fresh as a flower shop, but it didn't reek either. If that was the bright side, however, it was a piss-poor bright side. No pun intended because he was still stuck in this men's room with the corpse and he couldn't stay here for the rest of his life surviving on tap water and paper towel sandwiches but he couldn't leave the body to be found either because the police would be all over the gallery before the reception ended before he had a chance to follow Celestina home another thought the young gallery employee will remember that Junior had asked after Nettie and had followed him towards the men's room he would provide a description, and because he was an art connoisseur, therefore visually oriented, he'd most likely provide a good description. And what the police artist drew wouldn't be some cubist vision in the Picasso mode or a blurry impressionistic sketch, but a portrait filled with vivid and realistic detail, like a Norman Rockwell painting, ensuring apprehension. Looking earnestly for the bright side, Junior had discovered a darker one. 
When his stomach rolled uneasily and his scalp prickled, he was seized by panic, certain that he was going to suffer both violent nervous amesis and severe hives, breaking out and chucking up at the same time. He popped the capsules into his mouth but couldn't produce enough saliva to swallow them, so he turned on the faucet, filled his cup hands with water, and drank, dribbling down the front of his jacket and sweater. Looking up at the mirror above the sink, he saw reflected not the self-improved and fully realized man that he had worked so hard to become, but the pale, round-eyed little boy who had hidden from his mother when she had been the deepest and darkest end of one of her cocaine-assisted amphetamine-spiced mood swings before she traded cold reality for the warm coziness of the asylum. As if some whirlpool of time was spinning him backwards into the hateful past, Junior felt his hard-won defenses being stripped away. Too much, far too much to contend with and so unfair. Finding the Bartholomew needle in the haystack, hives, seizures of vomiting and diarrhea, losing a toe, losing a beloved wife, wandering alone through a cold and hostile world without a heartmate. Humiliated by trans people, tormented by vengeful spirits, too intense to enjoy the benefits of meditation, Zed dead, the prospect of prison always looming for one reason or another, unable to find peace in either needlework or sex. Junior needed something in his life, a missing element without which he had never be complete, something more than a heartmate, more than German or French or karate, and for as long as he could remember, he had been searching for this mysterious substance. This enigmatic object, this skill, this thingamajigger, this do-wacky, this flumadiddle, this force or person, this, this insight. But the problem was that he didn't know what he was searching for. And so often when he seemed to have found it, he hadn't found it after all. Therefore, he worried that if ever he did find it, then he might throw it away. Because he wouldn't realize that it was, in fact, the very jigger or jigamaree that he had been in search of since childhood. Zed endorses self-pity, but only if you learn to use it as a springboard to anger, because anger, like hatred, can be a healthy emotion when properly channeled. Anger can motivate you to heights of achievement you would never otherwise know. Even just the simple furious determination to prove wrong the bastards who mocked you, to rub their faces in the fact of your success. Anger and hatred have driven all great political leaders, from Hitler to Stalin to Mao, who wrote their names indelibly across the face of history and who were, each in his own way, eaten with self-pity when young. Gazing into the mirror, which ought to have been clouded with self-pity as though with steam, Junior Kane searched for his anger and found it. This was a black and bitter anger, as poisonous rattlesnake venom. With little difficulty, his heart was distilling it in the purest rage. Lifted from his despair by this exhilarating wrath, Junior turned away from the mirror, looking for the bright side once more. Perhaps it was the bathroom window. Chapter 67 as the wolf stand party was being seated at a window table, slowly tumbling masses of cottony fog rolled across the black water, as if the bay had awakened and, rising from his bed, had tossed off great mounds of sheets and blankets. To the waiter, Nolly was Nolly, Kathleen was Miss Wolston, and Tom Vanadian was Sir, though not the usual perfunctorily polite Sir, but Sir, with deferential emphasis. Tom was unknown to the waiter, but his shattered face gave him gravitas. Besides, he possessed a quality quite separate from carriage and demeanor and attitude, an ineffable something that inspired respect and even trust. 
Martinis were ordered all around. None here observed a vow of absolute sobriety. Tom caused less of a stir in the restaurant than Kathleen had expected. Other diners noticed him, of course, but after one or two looks of shock or pity, they appeared indifferent, though this was undoubtedly the thinnest pretense of indifference. The same quality in him that elicited deferential regard from the waiter apparently ensured that others would be courteous enough to respect his privacy. I'm wondering, Nolly said, if you're not an officer of the law anymore, in what capacity are you going to pursue Kane? Tom Vanadium merely arched one eyebrow. Is it to say that more than a single answer ought to be obvious? I wouldn't have figured you for a vigilante, Nolly said. I'm not. I'm just going to be the conscience that Enoch Kane seems to have been born without. Are you carrying a piece? Nolly asked. I won't lie to you. So you are? Legal? Tom said nothing. Nolly sighed. Well, I guess if you're going to just plug him. You could have done that already as soon as you got to town. I wouldn't just whack anyone. Not even a worm bucket like Kane. Any more than I would commit suicide. Remember, I believe in eternal consequences. To Nolly, Kathleen said, This is why I married you. To be around talk like this. Eternal consequences, you mean? No. Whack. So smoothly did a waiter move that three martinis on a cork-lined mahogany tray seemed to float across the room in front of him and then hover beside their table while he served the cocktails to the lady first, the guest second, and the host third. When the waiter had gone, Tom said, Don't worry about abetting a crime. If I had to pop cane to prevent him from hurting someone, I wouldn't hesitate. But I'd never act as judge and jury otherwise. Nudging Nolly, Kathleen said, Pop! This is wonderful. Nolly raised his glass. To justice, rough or smooth. Kathleen savored her martini. Mm. As cold as a hitman's heart and as crisp as a hundred dollar bill from the devil's wallet. This encouraged Tom to raise both eyebrows. She reads too much hard-boiled detective fiction, Nolly said. And lately, she's talking about writing it. Bet I could, and sell it too, she said. I might not be as good at it as I am at teeth, but I'd be better than some I've read. I suspect, Tom said, that any job you set your mind to, you'd be as good as you are at teeth. No question about it, Nolly agreed, flashing his choppers. Tom, Kathleen said, I know why you became a cop, I guess. St. Anselmo's Orphanage, the murder of those children. He nodded. I was a doubting Thomas after that. You wonder, Nolly said, why God lets the innocent suffer. I doubted myself more than God, though him too. I had those boys' blood on my hands. They were mine to protect, and I failed. You're too young to have been in charge of the orphanage back then. I was 23. At St. Anselmo's, I was the prefect of one dormitory floor, the floor on which all the murders occurred. After that, I decided maybe I could better protect the innocent if I were a cop. For a while, the law gave me more to hold on to than faith did. It's easy to see you as a cop, Kathleen said. All the wax, pops, and worm buckets just trip off your tongue, so to speak. But it takes some effort to remember you're a priest, too. Was a priest, he corrected. Might be again. 
At my request, I've been under a dispensation from vows and suspension from duty for 27 years, ever since those kids were killed. But what made you choose that life? You must have committed to the seminary awfully young. 14. It's usually the family that's behind an expression of the calling at such a young age. But in my case, I had to argue my folks into it. He stared out the congregated ghosts of fog, white multitudes that entirely obscured the bay, as if all the sailors ever lost at sea had gathered here. Pressing at the window, eyeless forms that nevertheless saw everything. Even when I was a young boy, Tom continued, the world felt a lot different to me from the way it looked to other people. I don't mean I was smarter. I got maybe a little better than average IQ, but nothing I could brag about. Flunked geography twice and history once. None would ever confuse me in Einstein. It's just, I felt, such complexity and mystery that other people didn't appreciate. Such layer beauty. Layers upon layers, like phyllo pastry. Each new layer more amazing than the last. I can't explain it to you without sounding like a holy fool. But even as a boy, I wanted to serve the God who had created so much wonder, regardless how strange or perhaps even beyond all understanding he might be. Kathleen had never heard a religious calling described in such odd words as these, and she was surprised, indeed, to hear a priest refer to God as strange. Turning away from the window, Tom met her gaze. His smoke-gray eyes looked frosted, as though the fog ghost had passed through the window and possessed him. But then the flame on the table candle flared in the draft. Lambent light melted the chill from his eyes, and she saw again the warmth and beautiful sorrow that had impressed her before. I'm a less philosophical sort than Kathleen, Nolly said. So what I've been wondering is where you learn the tricks with the quarter. How's it that you're cop, priest, and amateur magician? Well, there was this magician. Tom pointed to the nearly finished martini that stood on the table before him. Bounce on a thin rim of the glass, impossibly, precariously, the coin. Called himself King Obadiah, Pharaoh of the Fantastic. He traveled all over the country playing nightclubs. Tom plucked the quarter off the glass, folded it into his right fist, and then at once opened his hand, which was now empty. And wherever he went between his shows, he always gave free performances at nursing homes, schools for the deaf. Kathleen and Nolly shifted their attention to Tom's clenched left hand, although the quarter could not possibly have traveled from one fist to the other. And whenever the good Pharaoh was here in San Francisco, a few times each year, he always stopped by San Anselmo's to entertain the boys. Instead of opening his left fist, Tom lifted his martini with his right, and on the tablecloth under the glass, laid a coin. So I persuaded him to teach me a few simple tricks. Finally, his left hand sprang open, palm up, revealing two dimes and a nickel. Simple my ass, said Nolly. Tom smiled. I've practiced a lot over the years. He briefly closed his hand around the three coins, then with a snap of his wrist flung them at Nolly, who flinched. But either the coins were never flung, or they vanished in midair, and his hand was empty. Kathleen hadn't noticed Tom replace his glass on the table, over the quarter. When he lifted it to drain the last of the martini, two dimes and a nickel glittered on the tablecloth, where previously the quarter had been. After staring at the coins for a long moment, Kathleen said, I don't think any mystery writer has ever done a series of novels about a priest detective who's 
also a magician. Lifting his martini, theatrically gesturing to the tablecloth where the glasses stood, as though the lack of coins proved that he, too, had sorcerous power, Nolly said, Another round of this magical concoction? Everyone agreed, and the order was placed when their waiter brought appetizers. Crab cakes for Nolly, scampi for Kathleen, and calamari for Tom. You know, Tom said when the second round of drinks arrived, hard as it is to believe, some places never heard of martinis. Nolly shuddered. The wilds of Oregon. I don't ever intend to go there until it's civilized. Not just Oregon. Even San Francisco some places. May God keep us, Nolly said, from such blighted neighborhoods as those. There clinked their glasses in a toast. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave review on Spotify. Leave review on Podchaser. Leave review on Apple Podcasts. Leave review on uh, the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat.
a single simulcast.